Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for this time we can spend together studying your word. And uh, we do ask that you would be with us by your spirit as we study the book of Exodus. Uh, help us. Help us to understand it better. Help us to, to see uh, your power and your majesty and your sovereignty uh, displayed in this book. And so we just ask that in, in everything you would be glorified. Keep us from error, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today we're going to do the, the whole of the book of Exodus, uh, Lord willing, and get, get through it. So, um, obviously the second book in the, in the Pentateuch, and it continues from where uh, Genesis left off. So, um, at the end of Genesis, the... the um, the people that went into Egypt, we're told, were 70 people. And then Exodus begins by telling us that these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. Verse 5 says, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. So it begins where, where Genesis left off. Genesis obviously is not complete because remember they were promised the promised land. And so it's left hanging the end of Genesis. So the story must continue. So Exodus picks up there with the children of Israel in Egypt. Um, as we said at the beginning, the Pentateuch is written by Moses, so that's the author. Again, the original audience is those who are in the wilderness. Uh, the Israelites who are delivered during the Exodus uh, and then their offspring. So this may well be towards the end of their time in the wilderness. Um, remember that they spent 40 years in the wilderness and everyone over the age of 20 had to die off. They were judged because of their, their unfaithfulness, except for uh, Caleb and uh, Joshua. And so this may well be the next generation that's receiving this and learning about the history. But we'll pick up some of the themes as as we go through. There are several ways that people divide uh, the book of Genesis. So <clears throat> one way is uh, chapters 1 through 18 and then 19 through 40. So uh, 1 through 18 is their deliverance from Egypt and then 19 through 40 is the giving of the law and um, the details about the tabernacle. Exodus. Or Exodus. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you can divide it up even further. So you can divide it up into uh, 1 through 15, which is their time in Egypt. So you divide, this is geographically, you divide it up geographically. And then chapters 16 through 18 is their time in the wilderness. Uh, and then 19 through 40 is all at Mount Sinai. Okay, so that's it's sort of geographic. This is sort of thematic. This one can be subdivided uh, into uh, the second part, 19 through 24 is the law. And then 25 
through 40 is the tabernacle. So there's a lot of content about the tabernacle. Um, okay, so those are helpful divisions that you can you can as you if you read through Exodus yourself, you can uh, use these breakdowns to help you. Often, change in location is quite a helpful a helpful way to read. So, as you read, especially narratives, you want to look for changes. Um, so, you know, some theologians even will talk about uh, if you if, if you've done Shakespeare or plays at school. You know, it will say, you know, act one, scene three. And one of the ways that uh, theater changes is a change in scenery, location, or a change in people. And you see that in, in scripture as well. So there, there will be changes. So um, a lot of work has been done in what we call literary criticism. So reading the Bible as literature and trying to figure out the way it's been written and uh, and, and putting these things together. So geography is one of the ways you can divide it. There is a change in, in setting. Um, so that's the, the, the sort of breakdown. Okay, so <clears throat> the Exodus, we're referring to their deliverance out of Egypt. And in, in the Old Testament, this event is the the primary redemptive act uh, of God. So whenever the, the poets and the prophets think of, of God's salvation and deliverance and they want to praise God for what he has done, they remember this act. Okay? So it is, it is God's deliverance of his people. They were slaves in Egypt and God delivers them. In the New Testament, that is, it shifts to our salvation. So remember, we've spoken about shadows and types. This is, the Exodus is the great Old Testament shadow and type of our salvation. So this is a physical liberation from physical oppression and enslavement. And it points to our spiritual salvation in Christ from Satan. So Pharaoh is a type of Satan and from slavery to sin. So they were slaves to Pharaoh and uh, we were slaves to sin. Paul even uses that language in Romans that we were enslaved to sin. So many people uh, ironically think they're free. So they think uh, you know, I'm free to do whatever I want with my body. I'm free to, you know, sleep with whoever I want to. I'm free to um, get drunk, to whatever it is, to use the language I want to use. To, <clears throat> But what the Bible actually says is you're not free. You think you're free, but you're actually a slave to, to sin. And so the supposed freedom that, that people think they have is, is actually enslavement. They're enslaved to sin. And so this is a very, very important picture that we're going to, to learn from. So let's, let's go through, through the book, and we're going to spend you know, more time in certain passages than in other passages. Uh, but let's see how it begins. Now, uh, we're introduced to, to the Israelites, 70 of them, and they, 
verse 7, but the people of Israel, Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. What does that remind you of that language? They were fruitful, they multiplied. Uh, and to be fruitful and multiply. Exactly. So uh, when the Lord speaks to Adam and Eve and he commands them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with image bearers. And that's repeated to Noah. Remember we saw in the Noahic covenant. After the flood again, it's repeated. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Uh, contrary to, to what we're told about overpopulation, all of those things, uh, the Lord tells us to fill the earth um, with image bearers. Israel do that. They're, they're God's people. They're chosen by God. They are elect. God has chosen Abraham and chosen the nation of Israel to be his people, to represent him to the world. And here they are, they are fulfilling that mandate. And remember what we saw in Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. The Lord said to Abraham, whoever blesses you will be blessed, and whoever curses you will be cursed. And so the next verse, verse 9 is, sorry, verse 8 is quite ominous. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Yes. Can I just ask a question? So at this stage, are they worshipping the gods of Egypt? Or do these two and a half or three million people know God? Are we assuming that they all mm. come from Isaac and Joseph and they worship God? Uh, so I know they cry out to God, but yes. The assumption that they all worship the true God. Uh, no, as we'll see, they, there is a lot of syncretism and confusion, um, but God has not forgotten them. It, the scripture says he remembered them, and they cry out in their bondage, but their theology is very warped, uh, confused, uh, and so this is, you know, while they're in the wilderness, they're going to be taught who God is and and what he is like. Um, but they are still distinct. They, are not, they have not um, become Egyptians. They've not intermarried and they're just they're, they're a distinct group. They are the slaves of the Egyptians. So they have not lost that distinct identity as descendants of, of Abraham. Um, so I guess it's a picture of what grace would mean, that even though they didn't serve him fully, Needing in the least part. That's right. It definitely. Yeah. Um. Yes, Duncan. Um, so this might become a practical thing. So the Israelites basically moved into Egypt. Um, was that mainly because of the famine that happened? Or were there other reasons that Israel moved into Egypt? Yes, so the, so the question is. Uh, what was the primary reason why Israel moved into Egypt, the famine, or were the other reasons? So, remember, God prophesied it to Abraham. He said to Abraham, um, your descendants are going to go into another land and be oppressed for 400 years. So God had prophesied this would happen, but the, the human cause is that they, they move there because of the famine. 
and because Joseph is there and he's the second in command. So it's a blessing. They are. Yes, he is an Israelite. Yeah, he's, he's um, Jacob's son. And then they are given a, a prime, prime location, the land of Goshen, very fruitful land. And then they are also given the job of looking after Pharaoh's um, flocks because the, the Egyptians saw shepherding as an abomination. Looking after animals was an abomination for them. So they give it to the Israelites to do. Okay, um, okay so um, the Egyptians, the Pharaoh now has a decision to make because he can see that they are growing, which is a blessing. They are God's people and God is blessing them. They are multiplying, they are being fruitful. And he has a decision to make. He can either align himself with God's plan and say, these are the people of God. They are a blessing. If we bless them, we will be blessed. Or he can say that they're a threat to us. We will curse them. And then, of course, what Genesis 12 says, those who curse you will be cursed. Uh, and that's, he chooses fear over faith. That's always the... The issue. You're going to trust God. Um, and now the application then comes to New Testament application is the same for the people of God, the church. Okay. So I have this, I think it's a really good quote. Um, uh, from Bruce Waltke. God's promise to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, infers a destiny where some will bless and some will curse. By this promise, God establishes Abraham and his seed as the litmus test. The peoples of the world are judged by their, their faith in and their interaction with God's elect, whether to curse or to bless. The very nature of this promise means that God's election is not a blessing that can be enjoyed in seclusion by communities hiding out in the desert. It is not some private individual assurance of material prosperity and physical health. It is rather a special status given to a people who by their divine calling must live before the eyes of the world, engage with the nations, and today pose the fateful question to any and all peoples, we are God's elect in Christ Jesus. Will you curse or bless the church? Inevitably, those hostile to God, those who are the seed of the serpent, will choose to curse. Hence, God's elect must suffer. But this suffering is not punitive, so it's not punishment. It's not God saying, well, you deserve, you, you've done something wrong, you must be punished. It is part and parcel of God's plan for the redemption of the world. Okay. Uh, and so, as God's people, there are going to be those who bless and those who curse. And so there will be suffering, because there are those, remember what you said, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That's the history of the world. All people on the planet fall into either one of those two camps. Um, you either belong to God, or you belong to Satan. It's just, that's how the Bible reduces it. You're either seed of the woman or seed of the serpent. Uh, and of course, if, you, if you're a seed of the serpent, there's going to be enmity with the seed of the woman. There is going to be cursing. 
There is not going to be faith, there's going to be fear and uh, seeking to destroy God's people. And that is the history of the church. And yet, in the midst of that, the church has been preserved over 2,000 years. Um, and the true church is still a light to the nations because we still hold out the gospel. Uh, we still hold out the good news. Uh, that's what we're supposed to do, what Paul tells the Philippians, to, to shine as, as stars. Uh, we are supposed to be different and to, and to show the love of Christ. But persecution is not to be unexpected. Okay? There will be those always who, who are against God's people. So Pharaoh chooses this way and they decide to make them slaves and they, they give them heavy burdens, we're told, in verse 11. And they have to build cities for him. But, verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And ordinarily, that's also the history of the church. Um, uh, one church father said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so, you know, the more Rome tried to destroy the church, the more she grew. Okay? And so very often that's the case. They say that the church in China is, you know, hundreds of millions strong. Um, the... the in spite of a century of persecution, the church has grown more rapidly than anywhere else on the planet. So, uh, I think at one time, about 100 years ago, there were maybe 100,000 Christians, something like that, and there was the view that um, they, would, they would, you know, be wiped out. But the church has, has grown. And so, yeah, they're persecuted, but they continue to grow. So, eventually, he says, okay, well, we need to start murdering their children. He says, what we have to do now is kill the firstborn. You need to take, and he says to the, Hebrew, to the midwives, he says, when you arrive, you need to, to kill that firstborn child. Um, sorry? Firstborn male child. Firstborn male child. Um, verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But, verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And so he gets upset with them. He says, what's going on? So they make up a story. You know, when we, they, these Hebrew women, they're so strong. They have the, their child before we can get there. And uh, they preserve life. They choose not to. To obey Pharaoh. Now, this is quite remarkable. What we're seeing here, we need to take a step back because uh, we need to remember that at this time in history, world history, um, you know, Egypt has been one of the superpowers of the world. Uh, not just militarily, but um, economically and technologically. I mean, it seems, I don't know, but it seems we still don't even know how they built the pyramids, okay? Um, so, we, incredible. When we, if you think of Egypt, what do we think of? We think of these incredible feats of architecture. Um, and, and, you know, the documentaries on it, the, the exactness of those pyramids, the base is exactly, you know, it's exactly equal. We think of the Sphinx and these kind of things. And yet, when we come to Scripture... God almost couldn't care less. 
We don't, we're not even told the name of the Pharaoh. He doesn't even mention it. But two Hebrew women, remember the view of women in the ancient world, their names are recorded. We are told about them. God cares about these ladies. Their names are recorded. We know them, Shifra and Pua, uh, because they preserved the people of God. They did not obey Pharaoh. And so we see something about God's economy. What we often count as important and valuable and important in the world is not what's important to God. What's important to God are those who are faithful to Him, even in the midst of suffering and persecution, when nobody knows who they are. Uh, his focus is always on His people. So we watch CNN or BBC, and, and that's the focus of the world. But if you could you know, watch TV in heaven... <laughs> Uh, it would be on the church, on the people of God, on the little testimonies. Today, so-and-so uh, overcame sin and, and resisted temptation. Today, someone in fear and trembling shared the gospel and uh, refused to submit in this way or that. It's in, it's, and we need to think like that. When you look at Revelation, we'll get to jumping ahead right to the end, but uh, you'll see that, that... Uh, um, the focus is on the people of God, even though the system of the world that Revelation portrays is incredible. John is even mesmerized by the economic system of the world, of the trade, that the angel sort of has to, you know, hey, catch a wake up. Uh, because, he's, because if you think of the system of the world, it is remarkable. It is amazing. But we're missing out then what is the focus of, of God. It's always his people. Uh, and so here we see that, but what, yes, question. Right. A question from online, Hoi. Uh, the midwives lied to Pharaoh for good reason. It is acceptable to lie uh, to God for like force. To lie to God. Yeah. Well, acceptable to lie. Uh, acceptable to God, sorry. To, to lie. lie. Okay. Lie yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yes. So it's not, I would say it's not a lie then. Um, so we have the Hebrew midwives, we have Rahab, the harlot. Remember, she, she hides the spies. They say, we are the spies. She says, no, they went that way. Um, uh, so it's a bigger discussion. We, uh, I'll just say that up front, that in certain situations, a person has lost a right to the truth. Because truth is always in the context of a covenant relationship. So even the ninth commandment says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So it's in the context of relationship. So, um, you know, if you were living in World War II and you hid some Jews in your home and Nazis came to the door and said, do you have any Jews? I would argue that the Christian thing to do is to say, no, that person has no more right to that truth because they, they're unjust. Now, if you then apply that to say, well, I'm going to lie about my tax or I'm going to, that's, that's not the, <laughs> that's inappropriate. Um, but we'll discuss it in more detail because there's lots to say about that. But don't go away from here saying, oh, Pastor Michael said it's okay to lie. Uh, it, it's, it's very specific, and then I would argue it's not lying. Um, uh, and you can think, things for you to think about. Um, because deception is, is not the truth, isn't that right? So camouflage is deception in war. You're tricking people. You're, you're telling them something that's not true. Jesus, the Lord tells Israel to do certain things. He says, in battle, I want you to pretend like you've run away, but actually you go and hide. And when they come out, then you, you kill them and destroy their city. 
So God even told Israel in battle to do deceitful things. Um, so those are some of the things you can think through. But I think in, in, when we have some, some of the books are shorter, we'll have maybe more time, but that's the short answer. Okay, so um, the other thing that we see here, and remember I've told you before that the principle in the Bible of just, God's justice is lex talionis. The law of retaliation, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. God is always just. So what is Pharaoh trying to do? Kill the firstborn male. What does God do to Egypt later on? Kills the firstborn male of Egypt. How does Pharaoh try to do it? He tells them to throw them, to drown them. What does God do to the Egyptian army? He drowns them. Okay? And so we see that God will do back what people have done, okay? unless they find forgiveness in Christ. Okay? But uh, that's, that's uh, what we're going to see. Also, just while I'm on it, so in case I forget it later on, they are slaves, but when they are liberated, the Egyptians give them gold and silver and precious stones. So God says, you will pay for all the work they have done. They will get their wages, and in the end, they they get it. Okay. Yes, thanks. Quick question. Um, so, was that rule of an eye for an eye? Was that rule or law sort of changed with Jesus dying on the cross? So, yeah, he because he does mention it. So, um, the this rule was used began to be used for personal vengeance. Mm. Okay, so that we are not allowed to do that. I can't, um, you know, go and, and retaliate personally. What, what we're taught is that the government bears the sword, Romans 13. So the government is supposed to do this. So that still continues. Okay. The government is supposed to. to, to uh, he's actually specifically suggested it doesn't exist anymore. Yes, with like, respect uh, to the Pharisees saying oh. they were using it for personal personal vengeance. Mm. They were justifying their hatred through this. But it doesn't override the, the government's responsibility to enforce justice. Mm. So um, it, it is, it is death sentence for murder. And I think that, well, South Africa, we're quite fortunate. It's not a very litigious society. But America is insane. Um, you know, some of the, I mean, we laugh about it. Someone will burn themselves drinking a coffee and then they sue for millions because they didn't say it was hot, you know, and we like, but they, they're able to do that. Um, it's a weakness in their system. But if you, if you uh, remember, I think I said to you last time with, with, I, with Ishmael and Isaac that he lost the birthright because he was trying to insinuate that Isaac was illegitimate and therefore remove him as, as um, as a competitor, uh, and we see this all the way through Scripture. And the principle was: if I if I tried to you know do something to Keegan so that he would lose something, and I was discovered, whatever I was trying to get from Keegan would be taken from me. So if you if you can imagine people trying to sue to gain an advantage, and then it's discovered, hey, you you you've made this up. Whatever you were trying to do would then come on you. I think it would stop a lot of people from 
just suing it, you know, um, promiscuously. They were just <laughs> okay. So um, uh, they are told to throw every child into the Nile. Uh, sorry, every 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 male child into the Nile. Chapter 2 tells us, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child or a good child, okay, so she saw that he was good. What, is it, what does that language remind you of? Creation. Creation, huh? God saw that it was good. So here we are getting an echo. Remember, we've seen this all the way through that God will will do a new thing, a new creation. She's seeing that is good. Right? What is like? We're not told. When we read in Acts, when we're told in Acts chapter 7 and Hebrews uh, 11, because this is mentioned, the English translations say, because uh, it's in Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, and he says, you know, that she saw that he was a beautiful child. And Hebrews also says beautiful. So, I don't know, he must have been very good looking, I guess. <laughs> That's, which is strange for a baby because they normally look funny. <laughs> so that's probably why he stood out. Right? He's a descendant of Levi, yeah, from the tribe of Levi. But so, so you know, if you were reading in the Hebrew, you would you would pick up the echoes from Genesis one. So you pick, you're already sensing something. God is doing something. Um, and she hid him three months. And we're told in Hebrews 11, by faith she does this. Okay? She's risking her life to do this. When she could hide him no longer, she took him a basket made of bulrushes. Now, that word translated as basket is the word ark. It's the only other place in the Bible where the word ark is found. Where else is the word ark found? Noah's ark. So back in Genesis 8. So again, because we know Noah was also a new beginning, we know that Noah sort of brings, through the ark, saves the human race. So basket means ark? N uh, no, no, no. In, in the, this translation is basket, but the Hebrew word is ark. So not everywhere where you see basket is it ark. This is the only place. So this is a very rare Hebrew word. It's only used of Noah's ark and here. And so again, we're getting a... Oh, we need to connect to Noah. This, this guy, whoever he is, is going to be something important. Uh, we already see Israel's enslaved and in bondage, so we're being set up now for a deliverer, someone who's going to come and save God's people. And the language is pointing us to Genesis, creation, God is working, Noah and the ark, which brought redemption for mankind, and this ark is going to bring salvation for Israel, or the baby in this ark. Um, and uh, she puts the, the ark in the river Nile and uh, you know, ends up being found by Pharaoh's daughter and it's quite remarkable, the irony uh, and also important to note all the way through we find that remember that salvation is promised through the seed of a woman and all the way through we find women involved in saving uh, and so here we see again Pharaoh's daughter and um, Moses' mom and his sister as well. Um, and it's quite something because Pharaoh's daughter dis discovers the baby and then, without knowing it, gets 
his mom to come and nurse him and the sister to help raise him. So he, it's almost like he's raised by his own, well he is, he's raised by his own family but in Pharaoh's home so that he gets the education, the Egyptian education, which remember at this time is the best in the world. It's, and, and Stephen says that. He was trained in all the wisdom of Egypt. And so uh, a gifted man, he, he was uh, trained in all these ways. Um, but the Lord preserves him. And, um, and so we, we're being set up to, to, uh, for this Moses as a deliverer. Uh, Moses' life is really divided into three sets of 40. So he dies at 120. So he spends 40 years in Egypt. Uh, 40 years in the um, desert in Midian. And then 40 years in the wilderness. Okay, so... Um, and 40 in the Bible is a number of testing. So he... Um, when he is 40 years old, we're told... So this is, I'm putting together what, what Stephen tells us under inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 7 and what Hebrews tells us. Um, when he's 40 years old, he decides he no longer wants to, to stay in Pharaoh's home. He's going to go and suffer with his own people. Because he, he, know, he knows who he is. His mom has raised him. He decides, I'm going to leave. And the writer of Hebrews really makes a lot of this. He chose rather to suffer with the people of God than to enjoy the riches of Egypt for a season. He realized that this, this power and wealth and easy life was for a season. It's not eternal. Uh, he, he, he didn't look at this life as ultimate. He looked beyond. And so he chooses to go and live in suffering with his own people. And then he sees... Uh, an Egyptian beating one of his his uh, fellow Israelites, and he tries to deliver. He, he he stands up for him and kills the Egyptian as a deliverer. So he has a sense that that he's a deliverer, but not for the the last time. His own people reject him, don't they? Because the next time he sees two two Israelites fighting, and he says, "Hey, stop fighting!" and they said, "Well, who made you?" A, a prince, how do they put it? A prince and a judge over us. So they reject him. They say, they say, oh, we saw you kill that other guy. Then he realizes, look, everyone knows about it, and Pharaoh finds out about it, and so he runs away. Um, but what Exodus shows us is that the only way God's people are delivered is by God. Moses can't do it. In his own strength, he's not able to de deliver the people of God. It's only God. God has to intervene, and so it is with our salvation. Uh, we can't save ourselves. God must must save us. He's going to stutter with something, yeah. It's very... So speech in yeah, the, we'll, uh, we'll come yeah, to that. That's where God comes in. And how do you... Where does it say 40 is a, a number of testing? How do, how do we know that? Uh, we put it together through when the number is used. So 40 days of fasting for Jesus, testing oh. in the wilderness. 40 years in the wilderness for Israel. Um, and so remember, numbers have, have meaning in Scripture. And so the number 40 is synonymous with, with a period of testing. Um, um, okay. Um, 
Okay, yeah, so, but we'll come to that about his speech and, and everything like that. So he flees to Midian, and uh, where does he meet his wife? Remember, what's the singles bar? Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> if you remember nothing else from this course, you'll, you'll remember that. <laughs> uh, and he, he, he is... Um, uh, um, what, what does he do? Let's see... Um, She's getting, she's getting bullied by other shepherds and he saves her. He saves her, yeah. So those 16 other priests of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. So again, you see that he is an honorable man. Um, he, he protects him and then he marries Zipporah, whose father is a, a Midianite priest. And he stays there for 40 years as a shepherd. So, uh, we see that the two great people in Israel's history, Moses and David, uh, are both called from shepherding sheep to shepherd Israel. And uh, so shepherding is a very important image in the Bible. And it's interesting that to the Egyptians, it was an abomination. It was below them. Um, and remember, even Cain and Abel. Uh, Abel cared for the sheep. He was a shepherd, where Cain was a farmer. Now, don't read into that. It's you know, sinful to be a farmer or something. This is imagery through the scriptures. But of course, shepherd... Still, the world's still like this. What we see, what God shows as honorable, the world sees as an abomination. Yes. Even now. So to serve, because a shepherd is 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 a, a lowly job, you know, to care for other an to, to serve animals, um, and you mustn't think of it as. You must remember the shepherding in the ancient world, in in that part of the world, is is not it's not like in England or New Zealand. You know, you have these pictures of, you know, these beautiful green fields and. Um, rivers and uh, anything like that. Um, when when David says, "The Lord is my shepherd; He leads me to green pastures," that's the whole idea. They had to go and find green pastures. They didn't just step out the door. In fact, they didn't have a home to. They would live out in the in the felt with the animals because they would have to travel for many kilometers to find water, to find um, food, to feed the sheep. Uh, there were wild animals. There aren't lions and that there in Israel now, but there were. There were bears. There were lions. So it was quite a, a dangerous and, and humbling job. And so Moses becomes a shepherd for 40 years in Midian. And the Lord is preparing him for this. Okay. So the same with David. They had to go through this period of testing and preparation were actually caring for God's people. Because God's people are much more stubborn and stupid than animals often. Okay? <laughs> I say that as, as one of those people. Uh, but that's the reality. When we think that we're called sheep, you know, we mustn't think, oh, that's so, oh, we're, we're lovely and fluffy and just like sheep are, the, are dumb. You know, I'm not, not saying this as, a, as an expert, from, but from from what I've read from experts. Sheep are incredibly dumb. Goats are very clever. It's interesting that 
the wicked are called goats. They're clever, they're independent, they can sort things out. Sheep are dumb, they will follow another sheep off a cliff, they'll, they'll, um, they eat too much, they can die, they, um, uh, my, my brother-in-law has some sheep, you know, they just fall over and, and they, they just die. They, they can die very quickly. They, they, so when the Lord says we're sheep, it's actually a bit of an insult, um, but it's, it's true. We need a shepherd to protect us. We can't save ourselves. We're not the sharpest. God chooses the weak and the foolish, Paul tells us in Corinthians. So, but it is fascinating that they, they have to go through this period of being shepherds uh, before they can care for God's people. Um, okay, so uh, while he's in the desert one day, chapter 3 is the famous burning bush incident. So Moses is walking along and then he, he sees this burning bush. Now what's interesting about it is that it's not consumed. So it's burning, but the actual bush is not being consumed. It's not being eaten up by the fire. And so I think it's quite funny the way the Bible puts it. He says, verse 3, And uh, Moses said, I will now, I will turn aside to see this great sight. So, uh, you know, I suppose being in the desert by himself, he, he learned to speak to himself. <laughs> and he's like, in the King James, it says, he said to himself, I will now turn aside and look at this. <laughs> and so he, he turns aside to go and look at it. Um, and then there's a voice that says, you know, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Um, and it's holy because it's the presence of God. Okay. Um, and so... He, he is now in the presence of God. And uh, what happens in this account is that it's almost like show and tell. The, the image of the burning bush, we will see, tells us something about the theology, about who God is. So it's not just, you know, fascinating or, or interesting. It actually tells us about God. Yes, yes. Um, why is his father in called Did he have a different name? Yeah, Oh, uh, okay. I'm not sure. I always knew him as Jethro, so, but I see you right there, right at the beginning, it's Ruel. Um, it may, may just be a different, you know, maybe different, um, different language names. So we do see that in Scripture, like Paul and Saul. It's not that his name changed. It was, one was Greek, one was Hebrew. Um, so, so we do see that. Yeah, but I've never, I never actually noticed that before. Thank you. Um, okay, so the Lord speaks to him and says that he's heard the cry of his people. He's seen their affliction and he's, it's come up to him and he, he's come down to deliver them and to bring them up, verse 8, out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Um, and now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. Now, this is quite interesting. So, uh, Moses says, Well, who, who am I? 
And the law doesn't say, well, remember, you got a great education in Egypt. You're actually really skilled. Um, remember that time you did this and, you know, sort of recount his CV to him. He doesn't say any of those things. He simply says, I'll be with you. Okay? And that's the truth. The fact that God is with him is enough. Who am I? Well, I'll be with you. Okay? Um, so he doesn't try and sort of encourage him with you know, his track record or other things or his abilities or anything like that. He just simply says, I'll be with you. And that's the same for us. The Lord has promised to be with us, Matthew 28. That he will be with us to the end of the age. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And that is enough. Um, you don't find the scriptures saying, guys, you can do it. You're amazing. Uh, you got it together. You never find that. The promise is you can do it because I'm with you. Um, I, will, I will be with you. I won't leave you. And so, again, it's God. Um, verse 13, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Uh, God said to Moses, I am who I am. So this is... <clears throat> Again, a really, really important part of the, the Bible, the storyline of the Bible. It's one of the primary or most important texts in the Scripture, where God reveals himself to, to Moses. And um, again, you can see there in the footnote, it can be translated in different ways. Uh, I am that I am, or I am, uh, I am what I will be. Um, so that I really I don't change, but um, <clears throat> I am becomes a very important phrase. It's it is uh, what it refers to. God doesn't say, um, I am becoming, or uh, something like that. He simply says, I am. And what that means is, is that he is self-existent. Okay? Fancy theological word is the aseity of God. When we look at the attributes of God, uh, that God comes from himself. He is self-existent. He does not need anything else. He is truly independent. And that's what the burning bush is showing. That fire does not need that tree to exist. It's not living off of that, that bush. It, it is burning. And that's the idea with God. God is I am. Uh, he does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is Alpha and Omega. Those are all terms getting at the same thing. But this is an incredible statement. God does not need air. Okay? You know that? <laughs> he doesn't need food. Uh, he needs nothing else to survive. He was not created. Uh, he, is, he has always existed and he needs nothing to continue to exist. And he does not change. Uh, he is self-existing and is always the same. Uh, nothing can change him in his essence. We are always changing. We are dependent creatures. We need food. We need air. We need water. We need God. 
Um, without him, we can do nothing. And so this is a, an incredible statement that God reveals himself. And so this, this phrase, especially in John's gospel, uh, shows us that Jesus is God. So there are, in the Greek, the Greek is ego ami, or I am. And uh, I think it's found 22 times. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the door. And in John 8, he says to the, the Jews, before Abraham was, I am. Okay. And so he claims to be God. Maybe you've met people who say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Okay. They just haven't read the Bible properly. That is a clear statement to deity. Jesus says, I am. I am the God that appeared to, to Moses in the burning bush. I am. And the Jews understood it. Jesus said. He said, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. So he is, he is God. How do we know the Jews understood that he was claiming to be God? What did they try and do next? They tried to stone him to death. Because they said he's blaspheming. He's claiming to be God. They understood it. So that's one, John 8, if you want to go there, if, if people say Jesus never claimed to be God. Um, no, John chapter 8, John's gospel now. Okay, and so the Lord says that uh, he must go um, and uh, tell Pharaoh to let Israel go and worship. Um, and verse 21 well, he tells him what he's going to do. So the Lord tells him everything. Uh, verse 19, But I know that the king of Egypt, this is chapter 3, will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And so the Lord lays out what's going to happen. Tells Moses at the beginning, he won't listen to you unless there's a mighty display of power. And then when you leave, the, the Israelites can ask for gold and clothing and silver and you will get it. And so receive the payment for all the years of, of unpaid labor. Okay, <clears throat> uh, there's some signs given, but uh, what Damon mentioned, verse 10 of chapter 4, But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. So this is really unbelief. The Lord has said, I made the mouth, go. But he says, No, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. And so he chooses Aaron. And so Moses pays a heavy price for this disobedience. Um, because 
the priestly line then comes through Aaron, not through Moses. Um, and so he, he, there is a cost to his, his disobedience and not trusting the Lord. But the Lord is gracious and, and sends Aaron. Now the interesting thing is that when Stephen talks about uh, Moses, he says a man mighty in word and deed. Uh, and so, um, I don't know, his view of himself was probably incorrect but, uh, when he says he's not eloquent. Uh, and then, Michael, were you saying that this was unbelief or like humility or a false sense of humility? Yeah, very good. Yeah. So it's a very good question. So the, this type of thing happens quite often in the Bible, and it seems like humility, but it's always displayed as unbelief. Because if the Lord says, "No, I will, I will be with you." then we, we leave it at that. Um, so, um, yeah, when, when, when it, it, sometimes it starts off as humility, like, you know, I'm, but then when the Lord says, oh, no, it's fine, I'll be with you, then it's unbelief. Because the Lord has said, I'll sort it out. And then it's no longer humility, it's actually pride. Um, because one is not trusting the Lord. Um, we then get the relationship between Aaron and um, Moses gives us a helpful view of what a prophet was. So look at chapter 4. Um, Verse 15, you shall speak to him, so Moses, you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. Okay, so you see, um, a true prophet was the mouthpiece of God. And so... Uh, in this setting, Moses is playing the role of God and Aaron of a prophet. And so Moses will tell Aaron, this is what you must say, and then Aaron will, will say it. And so a true prophet speaks what, what God says. Okay. Um, and so they, they um, and we'll, we'll talk more about prophets another time, so um, and whether they still exist and, and things like that when we come to the New Testament. But a true prophet spoke the words of God. Uh, we will see in Exodus the warnings about false prophets, but uh, this is a helpful definition of what a prophet was supposed to be. Uh, he returns to Egypt. It doesn't go well. Remember that the Egyptian magicians can do many of the same things. That, that, uh, so there are distinctions. So, for example, he turns his staff into a snake, the magicians do the same thing, but then Moses' snake eats their snakes. So it is better, but even turning water into blood, they can do it. They can do a lot of things. So, um, you know, if you're chasing after miracles, just the supernatural does not mean it's God. Okay? Um, that's why truth is what will safeguard people, not 
signs and wonders because Satan can do that as well. So, um, okay, but um, Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. He hardens, he increases the workload. The people get upset. Uh, they, they moan at Moses. Moses goes back to the Lord, etc. And then begins the plagues. So, um, we're not going to, to read through all of them. What I want to say, and I'll put this on the, on the, on the WhatsApp group, this, this graphic, uh, later on. But the plagues are not just arbitrary. They're not just, uh, you know, how, do you, how to mess up an economy sort of thing. Okay, let's do this and this and this. Uh, Genesis, uh, sorry, Exodus, if you turn to Exodus 12, verse 12, it uh, really gives us, um, sort of the, the guideline, verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. There you have it again. So the plagues, the ten plagues, are judgments on the gods of Egypt. They are very specific. They are judgments on the gods of Egypt. So uh, they are also interesting that you can break them up into three sets of three and then the final plague. There, there are some interesting patterns there. Um, so I'm going to find a quote. Um, The purpose of the plagues, if you take it from Scripture, so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. So these are massive displays of God's power, so that the Israelites would never forget, and the world would never forget, the power of God. And so he's destroying the Egyptian gods to show their Impotence. Remember we saw in Genesis 1 the creation story overthrew the pagan cosmologies. So quickly before our break, uh, water turned to blood. That's the first plague. The Egyptians worshipped Knum, guardian of rivers source, Harpy, spirit of the Nile, Osiris, the Nile was his bloodstream. Frogs, uh, Harpy and Hect, the frog goddess of Egypt, both related to fertility. Lice, Seb, the earth god of Egypt, flies, Uatchit, the fly god of Egypt, disease on cattle, Ptah, Neves, Hathor, Ammon, Egyptian gods associated with bulls and cows. Remember that the Israelites actually make golden cows, don't they? Um, boils, Sekhmet, Serapis, Imhotep, Egyptian goddess of epidemics, Egyptian gods of healing. Hail, uh, Nut or Nut, Egyptian sky goddess. Isis and Seth, Egyptian agriculture deities. Shu, Egyptian god of the atmosphere. Locusts, Serapia, Egyptian deity protector from locusts. Darkness, that's a big one. The Egyptians had many sun gods. Re, Amon Re, Aten, Atum, Horus, Thoth. And then death of the firstborn, because Pharaoh himself was seen as God, and so his child was seen as the son of God. 
And so that last display is sort of an attack on all the, the gods. Yes, thank you. So, in, um, according to what you just read, God wasn't necessarily attacking their gods, but the idea of yes. they worship. Okay. So, so yeah, very good. The question is not their, their gods. So, Scripture says that, you know, Paul, Paul was saying in Corinthians that we know that their, their gods are not real. But yeah, their view. So they worshipped. Um, remember that that traditional religions are basically what we call today the prosperity gospel. So the prosperity gospel is how can I make my life, you know, great? Um, I need money. So what must I do to make sure God gives me money? I need health. What must I do to make sure God gives me health? Uh, someone has called it McDonald's Christianity. So, you know, McDonald's drive-through, you pull up the first window, you give your order, second window, you pay your money, third window, you get what you ordered. And that's what traditional religions all work like that. It's, it's, we need, so think of the ancient world, we need crops, we need, I need my wife to have children, I need to stay healthy, I need to, to you know, animals to stay away. So, what will bring me these things? There's not like love for these gods. These gods are not, they don't love people. There's nothing like that. It's totally foreign. It's just simply, what must I do? How can I bribe this God to make sure that my life is okay? And so God is destroying the things that they put their trust in to show I am the true and living God. These are not true gods. Okay. So it is a polemic against um, the false gods. And also to remind Israel, don't worship false gods. They're impotent. Okay. Now, you know, it might seem, okay, but that's a bit harsh. You know, so many people died, all of these things. But in Scripture, we, in all of life, we need to have a view that there is something more important than human beings, and that is the glory of God. And so that's what I read to you those verses from Exodus 19. That everyone may know my name in all the earth. And so... When God acts, it's if it is ultimately for His glory. Okay. Um, and so, the Romans, when we get to chapter 9, we'll see about Pharaoh and hardening his heart and all of those things. So, I'm not going to do that now. You have to wait for Romans. But let's take a, take a break now. Great. Thanks, everyone. We'll be back in 15. Um, yeah, we'll see you shortly. Be stuff. Is that is that not normal?
Yeah. Yes. Yeah, amazing meatballs Natalie made. So. <laughs> Oops. Oh, oh, did someone fall? Sorry. It's not complete yet. I should have people sign indemnity forms first. <laughs> send this okay. 